0: This podcast is brought to you by Primed. Anne is a 67-year-old nurse who comes in for follow-up of her high blood pressure, which continues to be controlled with metoprolol. Her most recent blood pressure reading was 126 over 72. She's been trying to lose weight through dieting, and her BMI is 31. She does not have diabetes based upon her most recent blood work, but that same blood testing showed she had an elevated cholesterol with a total cholesterol of 220, in an HDL of 46 with an LDL of 135. When you review the results with her, she asks, does this mean I need to go on a statin? Hi, this is Frank Domino, and joining me today is Dr. Alan Ehrlich, Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the UMass Chan Medical School in Worcester, Massachusetts and Executive Editor at Dynamed. Good morning, Alan.
1: Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, I am so glad you were talking about this topic because I I, just yesterday I was talking to a lab director who was shocked to learn that you just don't base initiating statins for primary prevention around LDL levels. Before we get into that, can you tell us a little bit about what factors we should be using to decide about the need for starting a statin for primary prevention?
1: At this point, uh, the... American guideline groups recommend that the first thing to be done is to establish what is the 10-year risk for cardiovascular events. We used to use a Framingham heart study equation to help predict that, but now the uh, the standard is something called the pooled cohort equation, and this was something that was developed by the American College of Cardiology in order to more accurately predict uh, who's going to have problems with their heart and who isn't. And what they do is they categorize risk as low risk, less than 5%, uh, borderline risk, which is 5 to 7.5%. Intermediate risk is anywhere between 7.5% and 20%. And high risk would be over 20%. And so what you do is you use the equations to calculate this risk. And obviously, most of us don't like calculating equations. And so- uh, there is a, a free app that can be downloaded to a smartphone where you just input a couple of uh, clinical variables that are readily at hand, and then it gives you a risk. In Anne's case, uh, her calculated risk would be 9.8%, assuming she's not a smoker, um, and as we've already said, she doesn't have diabetes and whatnot. So that would put her at intermediate risk.
0: It does sound like she she does have a little bit higher risk than... Than, uh, than minimal risk. So um, we're talking about giving this to her because for primary prevention. She doesn't have known cardiovascular disease. What, what are the differences between primary and secondary prevention?
1: So just to be clear, we'll start with secondary prevention. Secondary prevention is when someone already is known to have coronary artery disease. How do we know if someone has, well, a cardiovascular disease more broadly? How do we know if they've had that? Well, if they have a diagnosis of stable angina, if they've had any revascularization, if they've had symptomatic peripheral artery disease, or they've had an event such as a myocardial infarction or stroke or even a TIA, if you have any of those factors, that would be considered established cardiovascular disease. And any treatment for that is secondary prevention. It's trying to prevent the complications of the disease that's already been established. Primary prevention is trying to prevent the disease in the first place. And so people who don't have those things, we give them, whether it be statins or we try and get them to keep their blood pressure under control, it's because we're trying to prevent the development of uh, cardiovascular disease. And so the the thing is that the interventions that we do have different effects because the baseline risk of having subsequent problems is much higher if the cardiovascular disease is already established, compared to uh, when you're doing primary prevention, where the likelihood of benefit is much smaller because the baseline risk is much smaller. Uh,
0: you can't um, open a web browser, go to a YouTube page, put on the television, look at any form of print media without seeing an advertisement um, or hear, even hear a news report without hearing the relative risk reduction reported. And sometimes they say relative risk reduction. Sometimes they just give you this really large number. Uh, How much does, what are are the current feelings about um, relative risk reductions when people discuss statin use, especially for primary prevention?
1: So you're quite right that relative risk reduction is certainly what people hear about in the media all the time. So you'll hear People say this reduces your chance of a heart attack by a third, uh, or you know, forty percent, or something like that, and it sounds like a very big number. These are all relative risk reduction numbers, and what that means is that how much you as an individual benefit is based on what is your baseline risk, and so that that really uh, skews the interpretation. This was highlighted by a recent systematic review in JAMA Internal Medicine. The researchers evaluated large randomized trials where statins were looked at for reducing total mortality or cardiovascular outcomes, and the trials had to have at least two years or more of follow-up. They also looked at changes in LDL uh, cholesterol levels. The interventions were statins compared to placebo or usual care, and they found a total of 21 trials that met their criteria. Seven were primary prevention, six were secondary prevention, and eight were a mixed uh, population. And the average duration of follow-up was about 4.4 years. When you look at the whole population that they identified, it's fairly striking. For absolute risk reduction of death, the benefit of statins was 0.8%, 0.8%. When they looked at it from a relative risk reduction, it was a 9% reduction. So it's about 10 times uh, amp- amplified the uh, benefit. For preventing uh, myocardial infarction, the numbers were 1.3% absolute risk reduction and a 29% relative risk reduction. So someone might say, oh, we're going to reduce your chance of having a myocardial infarction by about 30%, when the absolute difference is only about 1.3%. Uh, for stroke, the numbers were 0.4 percent and 1. Point, uh, and 14 percent. So again, more than 10 times uh, a difference. And they did separate analysis for both primary and secondary prevention, and the same pattern was found throughout. Very, very, uh, much greater magnitude of effect with a relative risk reduction about 20 times more or less. Wow,
0: it 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 it's somewhat frustrating because. Um it's very common for even folks in the medical literature to put a relative risk reduction in an abstract rather than the absolute risks. And and it distorts not just patients' understandings of the literature, but even our providers. Um, So now what are we going to talk to Anne about? Uh, Her risk is uh, in that intermediate level. Should we tell her the relative risk reduction or the absolute risks? How should we help
1: counsel her? So- Before we go any further, I think one thing that that is useful is to understand the limits of the pooled cohort equation. And the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force discusses this in their own recommendations because they have different thresholds for when to recommend treatment and when not compared to the American College of Cardiology. The U.S. PSTF points out that uh, the pooled cohort equations lack precision and that there have been no trials that have enrolled patients based on their PCE risk. Rather, these are based on volunteers and randomized controlled trials and the extent of which the findings, uh, how much we can apply them in a contemporary situation. These were all done in the 1990s or earlier, and we obviously have a more diverse population right now. So you need to take these numbers with a grain of salt. In Anne's case, you know, her, risk is 9.8%, and you look at that number and you think, oh, you know, it's precise to a 10th a of a percent. Numbers have a way of giving us false confidence. So just always bear in mind, she's around 10%. 10% is sort of a threshold where the USPSTF would say she might consider uh, the benefits of statins. The ACC is going to be a little stronger in that regard. There are some other factors that come into play such as um did she have premature uh, does she have premature menopause did she uh have preeclampsia these are other factors that might increase risk and so things like that can be looked at but overall I think we need to have a conversation with Anne about the fact that statins probably would give her some benefit but the benefit's likely to be small you know her benefit is likely to be about two percent or less, and that's that's over the total of ten years. The pooled cohort equation does have a a place where it will tell you what is the benefit of adding a statin, and you can see the risk reduction over ten years. So she goes from about nine point eight percent down to uh in the in the seven seven and a half or seven point eight percent range. So the tool is very useful. It can allow you to have a meaningful conversation with uh, the patient about just how much benefit they expect. And then you can ask them about their values. What's most important? Do they have family members who had a lot of problems with uh, heart attacks that might influence them one way or the other? Or do they personally have a lot of troubled medications where if they don't really need to take it, they'd rather not? These are part of the shared decision-making. And finally, it's important to remember that no decision is final. You can work on lifestyle factors for a few months, recheck the numbers and see what happens, or go on the medicine. And if there's no problem, great. And if there are problems, come off of it. So these are all the things of how I talk with patients about this.
0: Alan, um, this is a challenging and complex topic and one we deal with every day. Thank you for clearing the air and helping us better understand.
1: Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer. The pooled cohort equation calculator can help with shared decision-making when patients are considering starting statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. Join us next time when we talk
0: about the role of telemedicine in providing medical terminations. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim CME credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, follow the link in the description. To stay up to date on the most recent clinical research and news, please subscribe to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine and be sure to check out primed.com for additional CME content.